Hi, I'm James McConaughey. And I'm Andrew Wycliffe. And I'm Brendan Pollock. And this is Podcast 60 on the Sunset Strip. Welcome to Science Schmience, the game show that tests our players' willingness to stand by what they believe to be true in the face of irrefutable scientific evidence to the contrary. And unlike last week, I have absolutely no jo- idea what joke we're going to lead into the episode with. I feel like it has to be something to do with the Commedia dell'arte bit. Yes. Yeah. Because I do not get what that is. What I'm supposed to be getting out of that. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, this episode is, um, the cold open. Uh, no, this is the cold open. This is, um, focus testing. I'm sorry. I have my, I have cold open written in my notes because... Focus group, yeah. We have, because we do actually have something resembling, like, a cold open in this episode with the focus group. Um, so yeah, I suppose we... Yeah, the... Go ahead. Uh, just the titles seem a little off. Like, yeah, them having a pilot... For the first episode, it like it it breaks their sort of vibe that they go for for the next few episodes. I mean, they don't. This episode, I, f- I feel like I don't remember all the names of the episodes, but I do feel like Studio Sixty isn't an episode, isn't a show that has like really solid theme episode naming the way that like Seinfeld or um, I guess Friends. Or Scrubs did, where they, like, had a theme they stuck to with how they named their episodes. They just sort of named them whatever they felt like. Yeah, I, I think it kind of sticks to it. There's a, there, there is a somewhat uh, standard Aaron Sorkin naming, episode naming convention, which is just, like, uh, whatever phrase he thinks sounds cool. Uh, and then there's, like, three or four phrases that uh, show up as episode titles in every single one of his shows. Uh, mm-hmm. Including uh, what will eventually get to the season finale of the first season of every Aaron Sorkin show. What kind of day has it been? Yeah, I read that somewhere. But that's a that's a problem for future us to deal with today. Dealing with focus groups. <laughs> to quote to quote another show about make about making a sketch show um, for NBC. Oh, Pete, that's later. Maybe we'll be dead by then. <laughs> Uh, if only. Okay, uh, uh, so, um, shall we just dive into this one, then? I mean, yeah, there's no... Th- these episodes open very abruptly, and this one is a little less abrupt than the last one, but it's still very, like, now we're here. Yeah, it does feel like they're kind of, in general with this episode, it feels like there kind of has been a bit of a shift, uh, like we're settling into like it seems like it's kind of settling in to actually being a an episodic tv show instead of like like we've kind of made that pilot to season one shift uh lots of like new characters that weren't in the uh, in the pilot are starting to like kind of move forward and become more characters like because it basically starts we, with um ricky and ron being given the job of like delivering the focus group data to to the rest of the team and it's like this is kind of their the first time that there's ever any like real meat behind those two characters yeah i feel like i know one of those two actors from something 
Uh, yeah, the bald guy, Evan Handler. He's been in a lot of stuff going back to the 90s. So I've probably seen them in... Oh, I've probably seen them in an episode of The X-Files or something. Yeah, he, um... Or, he was a regular on something. Yeah, so we... I don't... Uh, bunch of stuff, yeah. Just just sort of all over the... place. That's... It wasn't like a, oh my god, that's like... Like, when you see someone, when you, like, see Jack Black or Ryan Reynolds on The X-Files, it's like, oh, my God, that dude's yeah. crazy famous. It's like, I know I've seen you around someplace. You did something. Like, in the 90s, he was in Natural Born Killers and Ransom. I've seen that. So, and he looked exactly the same. So, yeah. And then the other guy, um, I liked him, but I don't remember. He was on Psych. I didn't watch Psych. Psych is fine. Yeah. So, I mean, they're fine. And it's, these are the two that we talked about how they get mentioned in the pilot. And I'm convinced that the shot of them in the distance was inserted between filming the pilot and filming like the first uh, regular episode because they don't figure in at all except for one shot in the pilot. And this episode is, they're, they're the protagonists for the, for the first act. Yeah. They get. They actually do something as opposed to pitch jokes that Danny doesn't like or Matt doesn't. Matt doesn't like. Matt doesn't like. Yeah. So yeah, we we kick off at this this focus group sequence, which I'm trying not to be overly mean to the writing in the show, but it really feels like a protracted excuse for Jordan to shit on this dude for not getting a Commedia dell'arte joke. Uh, I feel like. Yeah. It, and. It's that, but it's also an excuse for Sorkin to shit on the idea of focus groups. Which, you know what, fair, focus groups suck, but... Yeah, but it, it very... It is... It, I, go ahead. Uh, just, can you even imagine what Sorkin's experience with fo- focus groups were, though? That's, yeah, I can't imagine he got like, good focus groups on the West Wing. Or the sports night, you know? Was sports night before this? Yes. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um... But yeah, the, the, the focus group scene goes on, like, not particularly long, but long enough that I'm just like, what are we... Oh, is this going to be, like, the thrust of the narrative? And that it is. Like, the, the, the focus group is the thrust of the narrative. Yeah. Um, also, there's a... I feel like we should try to, like, separate our discussion of the episode into two bits. One is, like, the focus group plotline, and the other is the really weird Jordan plotline that just keeps going... Oh God, the Jordan plotline is, uh, yeah. That's, so which, uh, so which one do we want to do first? Uh, well, let's let's start with the focus groups because we're already kind of we're already kind of into it. So, so what were the, yeah? So my notes say that the findings of the focus group were they didn't get the Commedia dell'arte joke. They liked all of it, but like it was split on party lines on whether or not it was patriotic. Yeah, that's basically like the the two things that we we learn about the two things that we learn that are important about the focus group data is that uh, nobody knows what this what this fucking uh, comedia dell'arte joke is. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna admit it. I don't get what the comedia dell'arte joke is. <laughs> I was literally just in a produ- in a Shakespeare production last weekend and I, I if you did a Commedia dell'arte joke I would probably be sitting going what the fuck are you talking about well based on the clip because we also get a clip of the show we do yes this time, yeah. we do yes like, and it's 
it's terrifying. Like even with the most complimentary look at the show, it's terrible. Well, the, like, this is also the first episode where we start seeing sketches, and yeah, we, like the like right after the cold open with the with the focus group, you see um, a sketch where, as far as I can tell, the central joke is just we're gonna ask a bunch of hyper religious people um, about science questions. And the nicest thing I can say yeah, about and it. We're gonna cut out. Yeah, go ahead. Oh no, are you are you gonna say you like the Tom Cruise? Because I'm gonna end up there. <laughs> no, I was oh, I was wow. gonna say like the nicest thing I can say about that segment is it does feel like a fairly authentic SNL joke. I I actually do have a, a compliment for it, uh, which is that I think Rob Reiner actually sells it because uh, he's. Uh, he, Rob Reiner's in this episode as himself because he's the um, he's the, the like, guest. guest for the week, and he's he's given bad material. But you know what? Yeah, Rob Reiner's good. Yeah, I'll give Rob Reiner a pass. Again, to be on SNL, you kind of have to just be ready to work with bad material. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, so we, we I think we got ahead of ourselves. Was that the the other thing from the focus group? Was that um, yeah, people. They asked people if they thought the show was patriotic, and um, uh, Democrats said yes. Republicans say no. Hmm. Could there be some differences in the way that people in the country think about things? Hmm. Well, that's the thing. Like, I I have in my notes someplace. Um, not not till later when they actually like bring up the the topic. But there is actually something kind of cogent there about how completely the media in general and news media in specific got cowed by the Bush administration at this point in history. But I feel like this show is too in love with its with the media to really make that point. Yeah. It it doesn't age well. Like Aaron Sorkin's never been good at predicting where culture is going. Yeah. So, but yeah, it it's just it's a bummer for him. Yeah, we, we did get a little bit ahead of ourselves there because I actually do think that the the patriotic um, Bush sketch subplot is the best part of this episode for how it resolves. But we'll we'll get there. Um, so yeah, we we start off on this focus group. Um, we do a little bit of the they didn't get the Commedia dell'arte joke, which again I I don't get it either. Um, and then we go to this uh, this sketch with Rob Reiner and the rest of the cast doing yeah, the... They're, they're practicing... The name of the sketch is Science Schmience. Uh, it's like a fake game show where the host is uh, asking, I guess, like basic scientific questions to religious people. And uh, they're, they're, you know... The joke is that religious people don't believe in science. That's That's the joke. That's the joke. Oh boy, is that the joke? Uh, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to add to that. Like, we could go over the specifics. Well, the, the guy from the big, uh, I mean, the guy from the Big Bang Theory is doing a Tom Cruise impression. So that I lied. Yeah, I like. It's not I, a good. I, it's funny. <laughs> I said this before we started recording, but I, you know, I'll say it again now. Uh, it is like it is surprisingly similar to like internet atheist. Uh, content where it's just like oh 
you believe this, but obviously it's, you know, what you believe is wrong. You're a big dummy. And it's like, like, this is, you could just, you could just like open up YouTube and find this garbage. Like even, even at this point in time, well, maybe it's a few years I guess maybe it's a few years after the show's on, but like, God, it's like, yeah, just open. Like, this is what like the blandest internet atheist people are saying. And it's like, Aaron Sorkin, you're supposed to be good. This is boring. And like, (laughs) well, it does, it does jive very well with, and I mentioned this before we started recording too, that it turns out that, um, Matt and Danny got fired for, uh, defending Bill Maher, which, you know what, should, they should have gotten fired for that. Fuck Bill Maher. Um, that's in my notes. Good, they should have. Fuck Bill Maher. But, like, it, so it does jive very much with that sort of, with the Bill Maher style of, like, atheism, where y'all are dumb for believing this stuff, and I'm, I'm the smarty pants. Yeah, it's the, like, epic ownage of, like, once you, once you can prove someone is wrong, like, the, it's this weird belief that it's, it's kind of all throughout Sorkin's work that like if you can if you can prove that you're right then you're then the like your your opponent just uh, like shrivels up and blows away they can't like like transforms into a corn cob yeah yeah once you once you've been owned there's no going back which it is of course uh, not not how reality works and that's you know kind of act, acting like that is you know like believing that politics actually works like that is kind of how things got really bad that you know you can't just some people are yeah, just okay it? with being hypocrites it doesn't I'm matter how much you prove what exa- they are i'm trying to remember what exactly bill maher said in like the relative time span to 9-11 that got him like i don't want to say can't it was uh it was the you can say what you want, but flying a plane into a building isn't cowardly. I mean, that's that's like the textbook example of he's right, but he shouldn't say it. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's like, what are you hoping to accomplish with that, dude? I don't know. I wouldn't have defended that because that's just a shitty thing to say. And I think it was pretty soon after, too. I think it was still in September. Woof. Again, the official the official stance of podcast sixty on the Sunset Strip is fuck Bill Maher. We're we're indeed we're still neutral but, on whether or not it's uh, cowardly to fly a plane into a building, though. So yeah, we it's, we got it's this. It's been long enough that I can make that joke. That's the difference. <laughs> it has. It's been nineteen years. Um, so yeah, we're we're we get past this opening sketch and. We get a little oh, wait, bit. Of I have the... one more note about the opening sketch. Uh, I don't oh, know, please. like, I don't really have much to say about it, but I just need to point it out. Uh, so um, Timothy Busfield's character is sitting watching them um, perform, uh, and he is just eating it up. Like it's it's as if he is in a whole nother world because he is like just laughing and smiling and having a good time, and everyone else is like just like seems like they're just going through the motions but it just it it strikes me it was just like very striking to see this like like this one actor who just doesn't seem to be in the same scene as everyone else <laughs> which was also kind of funny but yeah not for the reasons they wanted it to be <laughs> all right so yeah then we we get a brief dip of the the jordan dui subplot which we'll 
I mean, do we want to go over that now? There's not a whole lot to it in this episode. I feel like it's mostly set up for later episodes. Uh, it, we, uh, yeah, you know what, we can go, go into it. Um, it does kind of come around at the end and have a just intensely eye-rolling moment. Um, the sex club line? The, uh, no. Uh, I, I don't know if I should save it to the end or not, or just if we do want to no, just I mean, we, knock the whole plot out now. Yeah, we very rarely go in chronological order, so just hit us. Okay, so I'll just do a quick summary and then uh, hit the part that just drove me up the wall. Okay, so at the beginning of the episode, uh, Jordan is... Uh, Jordan's... Uh, we find out that Jordan was arrested for a DUI, and uh, her... Her mugshots from the DUI are now all over the news because, you know, somebody found out about it, even though she had, you know, special white person privilege and had the, you know, had the her records expunged and, you know, there's, there shouldn't be a paper trail about it. Um, then it just kind of keeps going where, like, you know, it, she's having trouble with having her private life be, you know, brought up on the news and then they find out that uh, the reason it's all happening is because she has an ex-husband who is shopping around a book about her now of like all of the stuff she did and when she, like when she was in her 20s which doesn't really make sense like who's ever read a book about a network president like no one cares <laughs> Yeah, that was that was sort of my like recurring note like they're giving it this is like apparently enough of a, a thing that at one point she goes to Matt and be like I want to make sure you cover this in the sketches and like yeah have they ever really talked about the execs at NBC like no one cares I'm reasonably certain at least one executive at NBC is a serial killer but no one cares what they do they're just faceless yeah like it, it, it's just like bizarre uh and then yeah it's just like you know pretty much like everything else in the this show there's this like kind of bizarre weight put on things like pretending like the like people actually care about you know relatively mundane uh bits of of show business and then uh it turns out that um so it turns out jordan's got this whole weird past and you know she with the sex clubs with the it's not really described or it's not really elaborated on what or like what they are or think, what happened i think i wrote down the line it's like okay i didn't write down the line entirely is uh but it was like it was something along the lines of like a club where people where you watch people have sex yeah again it's like who who cares i mean i guess that would kind of like at, at that point in time you know, the news probably would have, like, eaten up any sex any sex scandal they could get their hands on. But it's, like, here in a in a post-Epstein world where it's, like, oh, yeah, like, every, every person in power was involved in a giant child, child trafficking sex scandal. Uh, yeah, who cares that you went to a sex club and watched someone else have sex? Uh. I mean... One of one of the tidbits I have from one of my books on Enron is that um, one of the executives at Enron, which is in the same relative time frame, uh, used to go frequent strip clubs, and he would cover up the smell of them by pouring gasoline on himself to mask like the smell of the strippers' perfume. 
And if you want to know how crazy <laughs> everyone went about that information, that is a single paragraph in the book. And maybe like one line in the documentary. Where the actual point of the line was that when someone made a joke about it, he had them reassigned to like India or something. <laughs> Uh, too bad no one ever just like threw a match at that guy. Uh, I can imagine anyway, his wife wanted to. I, in in my in Minecraft parody, etc. <laughs> uh, the the end point of that is that no one really cares what executives yeah. do. But it all ends in this like weird uh, speech uh, that happens in the at the final like in the after party, which is like the final uh, big final big scene of the. Um, show which is uh uh shit is it matt or danny i'm getting them confused now uh danny 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 is the one getting close to jordan danny gives a lecture to jordan about how it's okay for him to do cocaine because cocaine only puts yourself in danger but it's not okay to drunk to do drunk driving because drunk driving puts everyone in danger (laughs) and it's like it's very clearly this like uh, weird like Sorkin like it just comes off as this like hey everyone needs to leave me alone for my drugs my drugs are good <laughs> oh. actually <laughs> oh yeah like he he said those words to some woman before like <laughs> yeah it's this whole thing is constructed it's... just so that he can be like uh actually it's totally fine for me to do drugs. And what is kind of weird about um, Danny getting that subplot where he's like holier than thou is that he's, you know, still getting crap from people about only taking the job because he failed the drug test. And so it's this, it's like Danny's more the Sorkin stand in right now. Whereas Matthew Perry is coming through more in Matt, certainly more than in the pilot. Ma- but it's just like Matt's job in this episode is him lecturing her. <laughs> Matt's job in this episode is to be a dick to the other writers. That's basically all he does in this episode. He's kind of a dick to the two secondary characters who are writers, and yeah. And then there's the scene at the end when he looks at them like, "Oh, am I gonna not?" be a dick to them and he's like nope i'm gonna be a dick <laughs> yeah. and that's the end it's just so i don't know it's so so i forgot that there's like more to this jordan storyline that happens later so like just watching this episode felt like it felt like this whole subplot was just set up so that he could get to this little speech moment and it's like jesus christ dude let it go you <laughs> like you did some coke. It happens. Yeah, like you got caught. It's and now you got to move on. It's it's fine. At least you didn't squeal on everyone like Tim Allen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So so that's I think that's pretty much everything. That everything to say about the the Jordan plotline at this point. Yeah. This. Uh. The, Go ahead. I do want to mention that Stephen Weber's really interesting in how they play his response to it. Like, he's supportive, but, it, and it's predictable, but Weber's still able to, like, do it. It's it's kind of like this more obvious white guy role, and I don't know. I just like, I just like Weber this episode. Yeah. He's, 
anyway. Yeah, I can see that. That's a that's a good way to put it. He is he is um pretty solid this episode. He's a he's a good character in this show because he's like he's you know he's like on the on the face of it he's like the you know the business executive type who only cares about the company and the profits but like there are just these moments of humanity that shine through with him and i don't know how much of that is the how much of that is stephen weber and how much of that is the the writing of the character but it does make him like he's a he's a good character because of it yeah, I think I said this to I don't know if it was one of you two or someone else, but I, I was talking about Aaron Sorkin um, last week in conversation and I wound up saying something to the effect of like he reminds me a lot of the Cone brothers in that if you take their script on the page, there's not a whole lot of humanity or emotional depth to it but they sort of rely on their actors and their directing to bring that humanity back in. And I think Sorkin tries to do that, and he's not as... He's not directing it, too, so he can't do it as precisely. And obviously, I don't know if he's as good at it as the Coen brothers are, because, you know, they're the Coen brothers. Um, But I think that that is a concept that... I think that if you asked him about it, he would say something like that. I think that's one of the reasons why The West Wing worked as well as it did because the actors were there to like put some humanity back into the characters yeah does that make sense and it's I, weird though making because, sense yeah yeah but it, it's kind of weird though because from what i've heard at least in the west wing i don't know how i don't know how he was uh kind of at this point in time but in the early west wings he was apparently like really strict about not having the actors deviate from what's on the page so like mm-hmm. And I mean, like, that doesn't mean that the actor still isn't bringing a lot to the role, but, like... I mean, again, to use the, the Coen Brothers comparison, they're like that, too. I, they There was this really great story from Fargo where they were, um, what's his name? Uh, not Steve Buscemi, but the other villain. Um, that's not important. He was, he has this... Yeah, uh... He, he has this line, which is like, uh, where is Pancake House? And... The actor thought it was a typo, so he was like, where is the pancake house? And I'm like, no, we don't do typos. <laughs> write what we said. <laughs> Say what we write. We wrote it. <laughs> we know what we're doing. So, I mean, I don't... I get precision on terms of what you're... what you wrote on the page, but I don't know. I, I should probably... I'm probably just gonna break down at some point after my big big charity stream this weekend and, like, watch some West Wing so I can get some Sorkin oh, experience. No. Oh, no. Oh, it's no, all on oh, Netflix, no. right? Uh, I don't actually think it is anymore. I think that I think it left. Well, it, it, it's been coming and going. You have to check later. I don't remember where, if it's there or not. Right. Now I feel it like is apparently on Netflix. If I'm going to have made you watch uh, uh, West Wing, I feel guilty. <laughs> I'll 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 survive. <laughs> I, I don't know. I can give you some... Uh, I can point you towards some good episodes. And by good, I mean terrible, but, you know... Um, I've seen I've seen the one with the big map. It's bad. Um, I saw the one in the church where, like, the president's kid has died, and he spends, like, a solid two-minute-long conversation ranting at God, which I actually thought was a really good scene. Um, but I think that's it for my experience. I think that I've seen one other episode, and I don't remember which one... And I've seen clips. Obviously, they wander. They wander around the internet. But you've you've got the highlights. Those are like. So yeah, we should probably. Okay, where were we in the plot? But yeah. DUI.
esque bit. Oh uh, no. Okay. So we were at the park. Ricky and Ron come back to deliver the the focus group data, and mm-hmm. they're just like, "There's this scene in there where they come in to talk to the actors." Uh, and they're just like being dicks. They're just like, hey, we got the focus group data, and uh, you guys uh, gotta shape up or we're gonna fire you. <laughs> Which, like, so this, they are, they're being set up at kind of like the villains of, if not the show, at least like this arc of the show. Uh, except that this is like when they come in and start interacting with, they come in and go, hey, everyone, shape up or you're all fired. But this time, the way it's framed, you're supposed to, like, think, God, these guys are dicks. Even though it's, you know, it's the same thing that uh, the main character... There's a there's a line at some point in the subplot, and I don't remember where, because I've been trying to, like, not just write down random lines in my <laughs> notes, um, where he says, he can't write every single episode credits of this show with the with his with just Aaron Sorkin's name on all of them while the Curb Your Enthusiasm theme played in my head. Reading <laughs> <laughs> uh, too much into that, it is framed pretty villainously. Yeah, in, uh, the bald one. I don't remember. I don't know. It's fine. I watch House. I don't mind assholes on my TV. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it's okay to have characters who are assholes. But it's just weird just, that, like, it's just weird that, like, who who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? And, but in the... No, and the history is revealed that the reason Matthew Perry hates Ricky and Ron is not because of anything to do with the show, but because somebody interviewed uh, Evan Handler, the bald guy, didn't support Matthew Perry. So now we've tied it all entirely to 9-11 uh, media coverage. Like, they, when when Matt and Danny went to the mat for Bill Maher, um, they, they kind of like whisked out, which again, th- there, is, there is something there. There is something cogent you could say about the way the media acted after 9-11, but you have to admit the media's complicity in that. You can't stick it all on these villainous characters, and the show is not... Like, it would be a lot better if, like, Danny had wussed out while Matt went to the, if pardon the pun, Matt for Bill Maher. Like, that would be something interesting. Or if they had, like, legitimately thrown them under the bus, because what they actually said was... I don't remember the exact line, but it's like... When he was asked about the controversy, he gave an answer like something along the lines of like, our thoughts and prayers of everyone at Studio 60 are with the victims of the 9-11 attack. And it's like, like that's the answer that they're so mad at him for giving. That it's that's like, a stock answer. Yeah, like it's, he just gave like a sort of... It's, you know, it's it's like a kind of a boring, politically correct answer. But it's it's not like yeah it's like he didn't throw Matt or Danny under the bus he didn't like call them out specifically for being insensitive or whatever he just sort of you know he he, he gave a, a shitty he, he just gave a basic answer and tried to keep his head down and that's what like now now he's the and villain he, forever yeah and people were kind of people were actually legitimately just like really weird directly post nine eleven. I was just got done. I was just watching uh, Lindsay Ellis's video on Bush era protest music, and they pointed out that like 
And she pointed out that like there was a there was a song that was like a huge hit that was like courtesy of the red, white, and blue parentheses the angry American. That was just where we were at as a country. Like you can't blame him for kind of wussing out at that point. Yeah, he was worried about getting Dixie checked. Yeah, and go ahead. I I wonder if Sorkin went with this like based on the success of the pilot or the presumed success of the pilot because it we haven't gotten the full story on them until now mm-hmm. and that seems like it could have been episode one type stuff even if it was just in the dialogue whereas it, none of this was implied before this episode not even last episode it, it, it has nothing to do with anything professional on the show and it has to do with Bill Maher, who's not even a guest star in any capacity. Like, it doesn't have a clip of him in the line. So it, it's a weird, I don't know. I feel like if... Kind of cop-out, but also Sorkin just being really lazy and knowing he can get away with it. Yeah, I feel like if they had Bill Maher or someone like this, like that... In the episode, you could make this more of a thing. Um, Though not Bill Maher himself, because again, fuck Bill Maher. Um, But I don't know, like, it's... I'm trying to think of how you could actually make this subplot work, aside from just completely rewrite it. You you gotta... I think think Brandon said it best. Like, you need to give them some... You need to have them actually have thrown Matt and Danny under the bus. Yeah. Yeah, there needs to be something other than him being mad that there was no professional camaraderie though i'm sure sorkin would say that you know you you don't rat out your fellow your fellow writers which is we'll get to that in a couple episodes you don't think it fired am i crazy oh no i was referring to the blacklist episode coming up oh oh which is funny because sorkin is on the record as being like anti-union and has basically said in interviews that like you know like if you want to be treated well you just have to well you just need to be a better writer it's just kind of like right it's it's you know it's good it's good when it helps me but not when i'm helping other people (laughs) my response to that would be shut the fuck up yeah all right so uh what happens next Uh, okay yeah let me get back to my notes um so we got yeah, we got the we got Ricky and Ron um, showing up with the focus group data. We already went over what was in that data. Oh yeah. Um, I do have a fun. I do have a so the I think that the point of the patriotism thing was that Danny thinks that Matt is pulling his punches on the Bush administration. Um, like he he didn't let them write any Bush sketches. He only wrote one, which he threw into a dead zone, which I do have this funny note here that um, to prove his point, like Matt, to prove a point about how the point where he put the Bush sketch isn't actually a dead zone brings up Wayne's world. (laughs) So, you know, in case we're we still have any illusions that this isn't just SNL. And we also have I don't want to call it a subplot. It's it's more of a cul-de-sac about the news desk. Um, yeah, and it gives uh, the bald guy a chance to be like Rob racist to make him even more unlikable. Yeah. Oh, not not Rob Cord, not Nate Cordry. Um, yeah, the brother, Ricky yeah. and or Ron. No. Let's... Yeah. So he's 
so um, I, do, 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 I gotta Ricky is the nasty bald yeah. kid yeah, they, it's like Harriet doesn't want them to do the bit that they wrote for the news desk because she thinks it's like being mean to a small town and yeah so Harriet somewhere let's set it up so Harriet and Simon are doing the news desk and it's like you know this is their first episode where they're doing it uh, so they're concerned about doing it well and like and for some reason uh, it's it's Harriet Simon and then um, the other guy who is uh, the big bang theory guy uh, I don't remember what his character's name is uh, <laughs> but for, like it's three of the actors and they're in charge of this bit uh, which you know, I honestly have no idea how it would work uh, on in an actual show, but it just seems weird to me that they're like they have a room full of writers uh, that are all desperate to do all these news bits, and yet they're like, "Hey, these three actors, you're writing the sketches." <laughs> anyway, that's. I mean, I don't. I don't want to swear to how SNL works. But, yeah, I feel like the writers should be writing the news desk bit. Yeah. And I guess it's not that strange because, like, you know, in theory, all of the actors are also comedians. So, like, it's... I I do have... It's not like they aren't, like, they're unfamiliar with writing jokes. But anyway, yeah. So they're writing the news desk and there's um, a... A high school in Ealing, Missouri, has uh, canceled uh, one of its school play because it's uh, what are they? Let me see if I can find it in my notes. I think it was Midsummer. No, they're putting on Midsummer instead. They canceled. Uh, yeah, the they canceled Crucible. The Crucible, yes. Putting on Midsummer, and they want to make fun of them because uh, Midsummer is about everyone swapping partners and and just having sex look, and why would why would that be any better uh and harriet look there are three there are three solutions shakespeare ever wrote for um problems and romance lies magic and magical lies so harriet is like well we shouldn't we shouldn't tell this joke because it's punching down she she that's like the what she's trying to say she doesn't quite ever actually i don't think she ever quite um no, she never exactly. Yeah, she never it. exactly like is able to put her like to explain it. But her problem is that this joke is punching down because this is a like it's a small company town. They don't need to be made fun of. Uh, there's better things to do with their time. And you know what? She's kind of right. I, I was gonna say like I actually kind of liked that bit because. Again, like, much like a lot of... I actually think this episode is pretty... Is, compared to the first two, pretty good because it has moments that feel like they're real. But I think that in order for this sub... Like, she does explain it, but she does a really bad job of explaining it. And I think that what they need to do is they need to have gotten another writer on board because it doesn't really take her opinion super seriously. And that's an opinion that should be kind of taken um, seriously. I feel like Sorkin definitely needed a Christian sensitivity writer for that. <laughs> but isn't no- is normally something I'd say you need? Right, but well, and there's another thing about this whole thing that dates poorly in that she is defending the proto-Trump 
voter. She is defending the proto Tea Partier. Like, I mean, to be fair, she's already defending defending the Bush voter. So, right. So, it's one of those things where you're just like, eh, we've seen that this isn't gonna go well. Like, you you can't have done this character accurately. That's why nobody ever did it. So, you know. Eh. Sarah Paulson is like it's just hard. Sarah Paulson is as I love her dearly. She is absolutely trying her hardest with this, and I have seen her yeah. do a lot with very little. Like I watched, I watched like something like six seasons of American Horror Story before I finally bailed. It was not because of the writing, <laughs> but but the 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 sketch they have her pitch in exchange is just like, what mm-hmm. are you doing? And then when they're like, she's gonna make it. She's gonna make it funny. And do we ever see her make it funny? No, I don't think we see that one. And that is and basically <laughs> the whole show. Just the whole concept of the show encapsulated is the. Oh, this is funny. Trust me, it'll be funny when it's on TV. And then we never like, see they, it be funny. <laughs> they have this line right at the beginning when they're starting this little like cul-de-sac, where, which is like the the show lives and dies on the news desk. Which no, I'm sorry, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Um, there's, but also like, I, again, I I'm going to refer back to my, my experience watching all of old SNL that was available. Like a lot of the material Chevy Chase got in, on the news desk and like the classic, classic news desk was garbage. And what made it work is that he just did not seem to give a fuck. And like, I feel like a lot of what makes old SNL, even modern SNL work is you can't be that desperate to be funny, but this show is so desperate to be funny. Well, Sorkin's sort of reverence, sorry, for the um, glory days of TV sketch comedy, which is going to come up too. He's he's in love with the... uh, concept of it that doesn't apply to SNL at all and also is probably really historically inaccurate for how TV was in the 50s and 60s -hmm. so it's just it's this weird homage to a bygone era set in a different era like but then thrown in with modern politics Politics. And also that bygone era probably never really existed. Right. It was terrible. Like there was there's a great comic called Satellite Sam about that era of TV. And it's, you know, it's dark and stuff. But like even lighter, I watched this documentary on Vampira, who was like incredibly popular for a year in the 50s. And then this networks ruined her and you know she had a terrible life and people only remember her because of plan nine Mm -hmm. but it's just like the industry was it had it it, you know wasn't deserving of the reverence and i mean we're talking about this a little early but it's just that way sorkin the qualities he he gives these characters like they seem simultaneously naive and like when uh, Matthew Perry gives genie advice about um, how to play the Commedia dell'arte sketch, mm-hmm. he tells her, or no, one of them. No, it's, it's. He gives her. Go ahead, you go ahead. I'm going to try to find the name of the character. Oh, yeah. So he gives her advice on how to play the scene. And if it's. I think it's genie 
she was there for two years longer or she was there two years before Matt started his writing. So she is like the oldest cast member, mm-hmm. like longest running main cast member. And so it comes off as like naive and condescending, but not like aware it's condescending because Sorkin forgot that he established her backstory like that. Mm-hmm. Like it's just things that shouldn't even be a problem in this show become a problem. Right. And I think that, I don't know. I was trying to, I, I sort of lost, it is Jeannie that he's talking to Ada Fields character, Yeah. which I don't, I don't really want to go into the Commedia dell'arte Again, I don't really want to call it a subplot because it's one scene and then, like, a single shot wrapping that scene up in the ending montage. Well, no, um, there's also... Yeah. There's a, there's a handful of other bits where it, it just, like, keeps getting brought up as a running joke that, haha, look how stupid these characters are. They don't know what the Comedia dell'arte skit is supposed to be. But, like, yeah, the, think- outside of, like, haha, these stupid people don't get it, the actual meat of the, I, I don't want to say it's a subplot, the cul-de-sac is, um, Jeannie is like, we should cut this sketch, people aren't getting it, and it's not going to get a laugh. And Matt is like, no, we're not going to cut it, more people are going to like it this week. And, like, that's it, that's the entirety of it. And then in the wrap-up montage, he's like, there's, like, some shot that indicates, like, yes, I was right, more people liked it this week. And that's it, like, that's all we, that's all you get. Yeah, but yeah, you're right, he just, he don't... It's kind of also used in setting up Ricky and Ron as as the like villains because they're like the it's sort of kicked off by their earlier scene where they come in and start yelling at the actors and saying that like you know it's it's time to shape up because like that kind of sets her into a panic that like she's going to get fired because she pitched this sketch and it isn't all that funny and now you know now the the writers have come by and told everyone that you know if they're not on the like the absolute top of their game they're gonna get fired and what what that made me think of what the whole bit about how people don't get the commedia dell'arte sketch what it made me think of is that like there are a lot of sketch shows out there that are doing that do sketches that most people just aren't gonna get like outside of the sketches that everyone remembers, most you aren't most people aren't gonna get most of Monty Python because it's just really weird and really out there. Or like some of the Stranger, Fry and Laurie, or Mitchell and Webb sketches are just really out there and really bizarre. But they're not. But they're built around what these two comedians just find engaging, and you can't really do that on a show as with a cast as big as like this show has. You have to. You have to kind of shoot for the middle, and so they're probably right, and it probably should get cut because it's probably not funny. Yeah, that, well, that it didn't look funny in the clip, so that that we get a mon- I, I don't know if we mentioned it on live or not. I, I know we mentioned it before we started recording. There's a a montage at the end of the episode of like a bunch of different sketches that is absolute agony. Yeah, that's a, basically where we are in the plot now. Is that we've we've reached the show and. Uh, yeah, we see it in montage, and I don't really have much to say about it other than uh, it's not funny. Yeah, I feel like they can't... It's not funny. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, my, my broader point was that, like, I recall this one interview with Sorkin, 
And there's a lot of kind of embarrassing interviews around this era, uh, like with Sorkin around this era, because he was really out there trying to defend the show. Um, And I just recall this one interview where he says like, these sketches aren't supposed to be funny. They're when you see them in rehearsal, these are like practice sketches. I'm like, then you can't show us the finished sketches or just don't show us them at all. Just talk about them. And we can imagine something that's funnier in our mind. I'm sure if you gave me the premise yeah. of a Commedia dell'arte sketch and like an hour of me sitting on my couch, I could come up with something that I would find funny. But yeah, I mean, I'm, we do. I'm, I'm working on one now, and it is basically just like the the rest of the sketch is just that nobody knows what Commedia dell'arte is, and there's just one obnoxious guy who keeps insisting it's funny. It's a good start, yeah, I think. Solid joke there. Um. Yeah, we we do get. Um, I, sorry, you go ahead. I was going to say I thought about this earlier, it, and I think I thought about this at the time that Sorkin really should have hired somebody to run the sketch aspect of the show, like to actually make it real, as opposed to this, where it's never quite one way or the other, because it's not them sitting around having serious conversations as they deconstruct each dress rehearsal you know it's just i don't i don't know what they could have done to fix it but the more you see it the more obvious it is that it was never going to work with the sort of lack of commitment to the sketch aspect of the show they should have had someone on set if not in the writer's room who had actually worked on a sketch show <laughs> it's it's almost like the like a horror movie where like you need to like like a monster movie like you need to not actually like you want to not show the monster until the very like if you do show it at all you don't want to you don't want it to be there until the end because mm-hmm. you know whatever the audience is imagining is always better than whatever your like whatever your monster actually is unless you have like hr gear uh, design your aliens for you um that's you know maybe the one exception to that rule but yeah like or the, thing. the more you see of it the worse it gets <laughs> yeah i don't know it's there is okay so there i do have one other note in here of something that I did think that worked conceptually, which is the end of episode reveal that the question of how patriotic the episode was was put in there by Danny. Um, yeah, I think that worked, and I think the that reveal actually works pretty well, too, and it's kind of a, like, I, I think that scene is actually a little bit funny, where... Um, Matt is talking to Harriet and she is asking him about like how the focus groups work and then he is like like explaining who all is allowed to put in the focus like where the questions come from and then he's like oh yeah Danny can put questions in there ah Danny put the question in there <laughs> that's a good moment yeah, I, I liked that moment I felt that like the the series as a whole could benefit from leaning more on these two actors because um matt albie and matthew perry and bradley whitford actually have a decent amount of chemistry yeah of course this yeah this then gets ruined uh when they go to the beach and they have to have a case of the not gays where uh matt 
Matt tackles Danny, and then they have to have a line in there about how they're afraid people will think they're gay because they're laying on each other on the beach, which is just this is, fucking awful. This is this is why I need to be working as an executive in all of these shows because I would have one note that I would give all of these shows constantly: make it gayer, you cowards. <laughs> Not you, Shira. You're doing fine. Yeah, you know they could uh, like uh, Danny could have said you know, get off me in case people see us. And then Matt could have given him a little kiss and got off him. <laughs> Would have been fine. I'd be fine. But yeah, it's that, that moment does actually almost work until you're right. They do the, the not gays. Speaking of comedy, have we all like, and being not gay, have we all come around to the point where we're willing to accept that we all slept on uh pop star, never stop, never stopping. Uh, uh, is that Andy Samberg? I've never, just, just look up that. Just look up that. Just look up that title and gay rights. It is one of the funniest things put in a movie this decade. It was great, or last decade, I guess. What is time? Is time real anymore? No. Dang it! It's almost July. It's not real. Oh my god! It is almost July. Anyway, um, so yeah, then we get the wrap up scene. Um, there's not really a, a whole lot to say. There's that we already discussed Jordan's reveal that her ex-husband is writing a book and oh there's this apparently other, they're gonna oh go ahead there's there's another like i guess subplot or it's sort of related to the jordan subplot where um she is like the ratings have to be good for this episode because like because of oh yeah because of her like scandal uh, and the way she's been throwing her weight around, um, they have to be, um, they need to retain at least 90% of their audience from the last episode. And nobody thinks it's going to happen because they think, you know, uh, people tuned in last time because uh, it was the first episode with Matt and Danny. And now it's like, you know, the, and also, it's and no also longer, the week before the, uh, the producer had a mental breakdown live on air. Yeah, it's it's no longer event TV. So, of course, they're all, you know, they're all concerned about it. But it turns out that they actually uh, they they picked up a couple of points. And um, everything's fine. It turns out that, you know, if only those pesky studio men would get out of the way and let the writers write, then they'd, you know, they'd make so much better TV. Only we'd let um, Schmerin Schmorkin um, write as much, write as freely as he wants to. If only we had an an open marketplace of ideas in the TV world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. That's another subplot that just... Honestly, at this point in the show, what it, what it really just lacks is focus. Like, I couldn't tell you what the main plot of... Like, we've listed, like, five different plots. I couldn't tell you which one is supposed to be the main one. Maybe the focus group testing one, because it gets the most talk. But it's not like... It doesn't evolve until those final minutes when we find out that Danny did it. Like, there's no escalation. I, I understand that, like, that this is more... This is supposed to be more of, a like, a serialized story format like god what else was doing that kind of storyline in 2006 i guess battlestar was sort of doing it in 2006 do we think that do you think that studio 60 would have done better in the streaming era uh, <laughs> no, no. Just, i think it's i don't think the structure was the problem <laughs> no i'm just like no yeah I, I mean obviously the writing was the main problem but i'm just like i think it's going for a very serialized 
narrative because there's no there's not a whole lot of like rising action on an episode by episode basis so far. Like there's a minor, very minor problem which gets resolved more or less effortlessly, and that's that's kind of it. Like there's no. That's, that's kind of Sorkin's style, though. Like a lot of his shows don't like yeah, don't really have traditional plot structures where like things get mm. resolved. <laughs> they do have or, uh, they, something like what is it? Newsroom. That's what it was called. Yeah. Right? Um, it's newsroom is kind of like he learned all of his lessons from Studio Sixty. Like, not all of his lessons. I saw that clip with the uh, with the airline pilots. Yeah. Again, that's I've, another. I've seen the first that's season, another but, uh, scene that should have ended with the characters kissing, and it doesn't. <laughs> that's, but, go ahead. Sorry, Andrew. Yeah, I don't. No, I, I just I don't know if streaming would have helped with it. I feel like it was a couple of years late for the level of political discourse. And I mean, it could never have come a couple of years earlier, but it, it was like Sorkin saw the opportunity for this. And by the time he got it on the air, it was two years later and it was, you know, Battlestar, the shield. I mean, the shield is another one that really, 24, I, I had guess. to serialize narrative. 24, I guess, but I've never um, watched 24. Yeah, and 24, like, in a terrible way. Um, I, I have never watched a single second of 24. I'm never going to. Like... It's... Yeah, you're you're fine. <laughs> um, but, I mean, Lost was coming up at this point, Lost, too, Lost, right? Lost so, was I mean, at this we point were getting in Yeah, so, I mean, it was getting close to the traditional serialized thing, and... Yeah, I don't think Studio 60, it didn't do the vignette thing, and then it also didn't do the serialized thing. It was like Sorkin didn't want to commit to anything. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like, because, I don't know, I'm trying to think of what was really big in the 2006-2007 era of TV. Because it was like, it was after we'd kind of gotten out of the the X-Files, um you know, Monster of the Week-style storytelling, but before we'd really started on peak TV, which is where we're at now. And I don't know. I think you're right. I think this is very much lost uh, 24 Battlestar-era stuff, which, and, you know, Battlestar does have a very um, serialized format, disregard, but disregarding what happened in the last couple of seasons when it kind of went off the rails, uh, it also it did still have, like, this is the story we are telling this episode. Here is our problem. Here is our resolution this episode. And I just feel like Studio 60 doesn't have that. I don't know. I don't, I've only watched a little bit of Lost. I feel like Lost had that too. I will, I have never watched The Shield or 24, but I feel like if they survived as long as they did, they had that too. They had like, yeah. this is what's going to happen this week. Yeah, I'm, I'm racking my brain for like, other shows that sort of use this same structure and the only example i could think of is the west wing which is like a not a great comparison to it's like ah yes this aaron sorkin show is very similar to the aaron sorkin show um but yeah like it, it had the same weird structure where like uh, it did it did gen like it would occasionally have a and b plots but 
often they just wouldn't resolve. They would just like you you'd get in like they they get to a point where they would be like, well, you know, it, it's something that we're gonna have to deal with in the future, and then it would never come up again. And I don't know, maybe maybe Sorkin's still coming down off of that uh, at this point. Just like honestly, the 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 only other example of enough times that you need to have your plots wrap up. Yeah, go ahead. The the only other example of a show that I can think of that I recall having this kind of plot structure. I could be wrong. I will be getting there in I guess a few a few weeks, a few months on my X Files review blog. But the only other show that I think sort of had this structure was The Lone Gunman, and that is not a show that lasted very long. Well, the lone gunman was canceled by the government for, uh, of course, because they got too Predicting. close to the truth with 9-11. Predicting 9-11, yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, what a, yeah. what a fucking wild, like, weird historical <laughs> fact that, like, oh, uh, yeah, there was an X-Files spinoff and it predicted 9-11. But, like, the lone gunman is kind of what I'm talking about when I say, like, do I, like, the lone gunman is a very low-budget, very talky, plot-heavy show which is why it was never going to shadow of the X-Files, which was, like, the biggest thing in the universe at that particular moment in history, and was also kind of flailing because they just lost David Duchovny, but never mind, that's, that's X-Files history. But I do think that if, like, The Lone Gunman had come out during peak TV era, I think it probably would have done better because its, it's style is more suited to... Um, to the the current era of TV, and I'm I'm just kind of like I mean, Lord knows Aaron Sorkin would do really well with the the Netflix plot structure of having enough episode enough plot for five to six solid episodes, but having thirteen episodes to fill. So it's time to spin <laughs> some wheels. Ah. Uh, but yeah, that's basically what the show is doing at this point. It's just uh, spinning its wheels. It's kind of got something going on between Matt and Harriet, which doesn't really do anything this episode. Um, and it's kind of got the Jordan plot, which isn't really going anywhere. Um, I, you know, I I don't think it's quite as bad as you do, uh, as you think it is. Uh, I'm gonna have to defend Studio 60 here, which is, oh god. <laughs> but, I'm yeah, sorry. like, uh, like I, it's not quite in spinning its wheels territory for me uh i th- it, you know it feels like it's more just like like it, it's still in a weird transition phase of like spinning up like trying to do a little bit of a reset uh between like the the what was the pilot episode and what is now like the um like the actual running season and then like just sort of setting up future plots like you know i'm not i don't necessarily know if i'd go as far as to say you know it's doing it well but like eh, hey like it, it doesn't quite feel like spinning its wheels like it's not just passing time to pass time i guess is my That's point. F- all right i guess you're right um i have seen much worse examples of wheel spinning from uh streaming shows um so anyone else got anything to add before i read off the Oh shit! I left my DVD copy across the room. Before I read off the uh, um, <laughs> the plot synopsis for next episode, oh, I do, I do have one final point in my notes, uh, which is that once again uh, the episode ends on the most on the nose uh, song choice possible. Uh, 
Danny is walking around the the wrap up party, and you know he's he's spending he's he's giving the good news to everyone, and they're all happy, and he's just thinking about you know, well we've got to do it all again like next week because uh, he like they have this little moment with uh, or no it's Matt who's walking around giving. Uh, uh, thinking about this and uh, Matt and Danny have this moment where they're like it's like ah oh, the numbers went up the, the stocks went up everything's good and then Matt says like well there's only one way that they can go and that's down and then he's walking around the party kind of being like having this bittersweet moment well will you still love me tomorrow plays in the background and it's like geez I wonder what this guy's thinking about uh, well, this song just obviously spells out that he's thinking about uh, whether or not this is going to last. <laughs> you know, like, again, I question how much, what what percent of, I would love to know what percent of their budget went to licensing the most on-the-nose possible songs for every episode. <laughs> yeah, that was, I do, I don't really know how to feel about that, um... That yeah, final, like, um, I don't even necessarily final, dislike it. It's just funny <laughs> to me. It's it's a weird montage. I don't know how to to roll with it because it is it is a lot more bittersweet than I feel like the 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 dialogue and scenes leading into it set it up to be. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah, because it's like they. You know they they had their big win and then they just kind of like out of nowhere they're just like yeah well you know narratively this has to go bad <laughs> and it's like wait what are you aware yeah. you're in a tv show you're not supposed to be <laughs> yeah i don't know we'll see uh it's it's an it's an odd montage but i didn't really have much in the way of thoughts on it that's where we get the the wrap up to um the um what's your name the oh. genie is there is go ahead yeah but there's also the weird thing where a white girl comes on to D.L. Hewley and gives her to Tom Jeter instead yeah that, that moment doesn't age very well yeah it was such a oh is that was such a weird moment that I just completely blanked on until you brought it up I'm like oh my god that is in there isn't it that's is oh, is yeah. that what that was supposed to be Yes, it was. Uh, yeah, because I, I did have, like, a, a thing in my notes that's just, like, they they frame this shot like it's significant, but I don't understand what they're, what they're doing. I, yes, you still got uh, groupies at your Friday night comedy show rap party. Oh, we, we will discuss the, the concept of Studio 60 groupies later because who oh boy there's some <laughs> there's some stuff coming up yeah d i don't know dl Hewley uh, is so incredibly underwritten at this point that i don't know what i was supposed to take away from that scene it's yeah and there's there's like this i feel like at some point sorkin got it through his head that he was not going to write a black character very well but um, rather than hand the writing duties of that over to someone who could write them better, i.e. an actual, you know, black person, he just elected not to really write D.L. Hewley's character. 
at least at this point. Um, I could be. It that's, could. That's gonna. It could. He could change his mind later. Yeah, that's some wonderful foreshadowing for something that's coming up soon. Yeah, I feel like we're gonna. I, I don't that, remember. That, that would, you know, it would. It would not be the first time that uh, Aaron Sorkin has. Yeah. Written a written a character poorly, or written a, a black character poorly, and then just like thrown a fit about it instead of trying to do it right. Uh, yeah, there's some there's some weird stuff that happens in the West Wing. I guess I'll I, I might try to according to um, the interwebs, which have been wrong before. Um, the West Wing is still on Netflix, so I might watch a little bit of it to see what I what I get out of it. Um, but more likely, I'll just keep watching uh, Twin Peaks instead. Um, so okay, I'm going to I'm going to go grab my copy of the DVD so I can read off the uh, plot summary off it for the next episode. All right, all right. Uh, let's see if I can remember anything that happens next. Uh, I'm gonna guess. You know, I just said they're, that they're not really spinning their wheels, but I'm going to guess that a lot of what happens in the next episode is kind of spinning its wheels. Okay, so the next episode is entitled The West Coast Delay. Um, the staff scurries to correct an error by breaking into the show's West Coast feed with a rewritten live segment. Oh, oh, this is... If this is the one I think it is, well, then it's a, it's certainly one to talk about. <laughs> is that Jenna Fisher? Um, uh, it might be. I know Jenna Fisher is on an episode. Man, that's a... It is very hard to date something more intently than having uh, Jenna Fisher in it, which I'm sure she's a perfectly wonderful person, but she's uh, she kind of dropped out of sight after the op- office ended, didn't she? Uh, I don't remember how time works. I know that she was in, like, a number of, like throwaway comedy I just movies. came back to uh, but I can't remember if that all say goodbye yeah well um, the office was still running or not so yeah that's uh, that's what we'll be discussing yeah. next time um the uh the west coast delay yes um yeah and and until next time I'll be wondering will you still love us until then they have to love us at first uh that's a good note to end on yeah right. and oh we just lost Andrew, so I gotta run, guys. Oh, and we got you. Back. Sorry about that. Thanks, guys. Oh, Andrew, right. we were Andrew returns oh. to say goodbye. All right, thank um, you. So good night until uh, next month, I guess.